Welcome to Unseen Unknown. I'm Jasmine Bina. The town of Grafton, New Hampshire has a problem with bears. Well, despite the snow today, spring is here and the black bears are beginning to wake up. And Adam Grafton has been overrun by bears not once, but twice in the past 10 years. And bear invasions continue to be a major issue to this day. Melissa Champney's husband woke her up in the middle of the night over the weekend. An unwanted guest had made his way into their mudroom and was unable to get out. He kept saying, there's a giant bear. Do not let that bear in the house. The people that live in this small town have dealt with more than just destroyed property. They've lost pets, they've suffered actual bear attacks, and have somehow fostered a population of bears that is incredibly bold often hanging out on porches in broad daylight. He tore off all of the sheetrock, all of the insulation. Um, He tore down screens. He did a lot of damage. From the outside, Grafton looks like a sleepy town with some curious wildlife. But not long ago, this sleepy town was the promise of paradise for over 20,000 Americans who pledged to move there and create a utopia of sorts for people that share the same political, social, and moral values. And somehow, that paradise has turned into black bear hell. The chain of events that brought this particular bear crashing into this couple's mudroom, however, is a signal of something much bigger that's been looming on our cultural horizon. Weak social ties being replaced with strong social ties, and the technologies that are fueling the next wave of innovation. In this house episode of Unseen Unknown, I'm talking again to Jean-Louis Rollins, my co-founder at Concept Bureau, about the decline of weak ties and the ascent of strong ties, how strong ties are the future of community, and how community is the new brand. I promise we'll get back to the bears in a second, but let's start our conversation with something equally curious. What are strong ties? And why, after a decade of exploiting weak ties, are we moving in this new direction? In order to understand the era of strong ties, we first have to understand the era of weak ties, which is really the last 20 years of innovation. If you look at who are the winners in the last 20 years, it was the networks. We had so many platforms that captured value from weak tie networks. So some examples of this. Before the era of Yelp and before the era of online reviews, you'd need to find an expert. You need to find a, you know, a travel expert or a blogger, someone you could trust who would tell you how to navigate a city, for example. And so when these platforms came about, what happened is for the first time really ever, we trusted strangers in mass. We trusted weak ties who we had very loose connections with to tell us this is the best place to go for breakfast. You know, on LinkedIn, these weak tie connections, connections that we don't really have any mutual connections with, people with hundreds of connections, they were able to leverage that value when they needed to get a new job and actually capture and extract a ton of value from a weak tie network. You know, we see this with Facebook Marketplace, with all just so many different social networks. We see us extracting value in new ways, even in dating sites, you know, these loose connections, that things that tie you together very loosely. Really, the last 20 years, we extracted value from weak ties. And I think to borrow the analogy here, this, this term strong tie and weak tie actually came out of a linguistics study. So it's a really interesting story, actually. They did a study about how language changes. What are, what are the causes of language? I think it was the, the Milroy and Milroy study in Belfast. And what they found was that weak ties bring more change. They bring more information almost inherently. You know, you have many, many weak ties. You have a lot more information in the system. And so things can change faster. But what they found is it was the deep ties 
that cemented that change and made it really stick. And so in a network that had many deep ties, you introduce a lot of new terminology. The network would adopt one of these new terms as a new piece of language. What's interesting in this study is if you have a mix of strong ties and weak ties, socially, what happens is you end up with one dominant term, but then that changes and you end up with a new dominant term. And so over time, there's a bit of an evolution as there's a mix of sort of information coming in and change that's happening. So the last 20 years really was just us codifying and extracting value out of our weak ties. And I think especially anyone, <laughs> everyone going through the pandemic, we realized that weak ties leave a lot to be desired. And really, it was our strong ties that would keep us company through that experience that created a lot of value for us. And so my hypothesis here, as we move into the era of strong ties, is we're about to see a lot of new innovation happen with our closer connections, with our family, with our close friends in smaller communities. And this is really where the next generation, the next 10, 20 years of innovation, of capital creation, capital and value capture is really going to take place. And so a very, very different dynamic that is going to unfold here, because in a weak tie network, what did you have? You had information, you had speed, you had change that was very, very fast and rapid. But in a strong tie era, you've got a depth of change. And I think that's what's really interesting. We've seen so much rapid change. And so I really think that where we're moving to is a fascinating place where we're just going to see a lot of much deeper social change and innovation and cultural change on the back of uh, new technologies. So I think we understand what a weak tie is. But a strong tie, it's got to be more than just like people you know better. Like it's not, it can't just be like your family and friends. Like what is the nature of a strong tie? It's really someone who's just embedded in your network. There is an influence factor when you have a friend or a family member that is part of your social circle that you connect with frequently and you have a lot of mutual connections. They're really part of that much tighter sphere of influence. You might be exposed to new language through someone that you don't know who's shared something viral on social media, but it's really the people that you know that you codify that new language with. It's, that's when you start using that new language and embedding that in your identity. And so I think that it's that distinction between information coming in and, and change happening happening within. And you're not just talking about language here. You're talking about overall behaviors. Is that right? Yeah, I think the implications of innovation that's going to get much more intimate in a lot of ways are going to be pretty profound. You know, when you think about change, yeah, language is the most tangible, but I think we're going to see a lot of social and cultural change especially. So let's get into it then. What are some examples of places where we're seeing innovation in strong ties versus weak ties? Mhm. One of the most obvious stories here is the story of crypto. If you look at DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, really what you have here, the fundamental technology is essentially almost like a community management infrastructure with a lot of trust baked in. You can trust that you can have multiple people co-invested in the same cause, the same project, and in a much more tight-knit, intimate community, you can affect change. So a really interesting example of this there was a comic book project someone made based on one of these crypto punks. They made a comic book. And this, this is a piece of cultural collateral that is owned by a community. And so it's not of a stretch of imagination to imagine 
a world we're headed to where Marvel, you can actually have a stake in Thor, for example. You can have a part ownership in those characters. And you now have a tight-knit community of fans that are financially invested in this, that have a unique language, that have a unique culture and community, but they have aligned incentives. They care about this character and they want to see it leveraged in, in pop culture, in movies, and TV. So that's just one really interesting example. But I think there are some ones that are much closer to home. If you look at the creator economy and the passion economy, what does that look like? We're moving to a membership model. You know, there's an interesting analogy as I was thinking about this thesis here, is that for a long time, we've been told, find your passion. And the economic model has been, you find your passion, you sell that story on social media, whether it's, you know, YouTube or Instagram, wherever, and you get followers, you amass cultural capital through that. And, you know, you hope to turn that often through advertising into revenue. But now you're finding a much smaller group of fans and you're building communities around these passions. And so really maybe the adage of the era of strong ties, instead of find your passion, we're moving to an era where it's find your people. Yeah, so this makes me think of platforms like Patreon, places like that. Is this what you're talking about? Exactly. They're really becoming community management platforms. You know, there's a new kind of relationship that's starting to emerge. And sure, they're centered around one individual, but really these are people who all kind of enjoy whatever kind of niche or vertical that is, they're there for the love of that thing. And so I think this is the, really the beginning of strong tie infrastructure, these micro communities, which are deeply interwoven. There's, there's kind of unique language that emerges out of these much tighter networks of people. Again, the point here and the value isn't to have large networks. Almost the value comes out of having small, much more intimate networks. It makes me think of um, Lee Jin's whole thesis around the creator economy where, you know, you used to need like a, a thousand people who'd be paying $10 for your service or entertainment or content or whatever it is. And now it's a matter of getting a hundred people that would pay a thousand dollars each. And I think that that maybe shows the contrast between the first model is more of like a weak time model and the second model is more of a strong time model. And it's interesting because the business model here kind of implicates the social model as well. Absolutely. The era of weak ties was an attention model. It was built around advertising. And it looks like where we're going is the era of strong ties as a membership model. It's very much about having that community. And when you change the economic incentives, I think you change all of the dynamics. Right. So those are obvious examples. Where else do you see strong ties cementing in our culture? So I think there's one area which is, is fascinating. Not many people think about this, but a shareholder should have the ability to vote on what the company does. But I think something like 30% of the S&P is owned by either ETFs or index mutual funds. And so the point is, is that you've got a ton of capital with no means to actually influence these companies, but that's starting to change. So there's a really fascinating company, Engine Number One. And what they're trying to do is get their shareholders to vote on what the kind of companies should do. A lot of this seems to focus on environmental action. And actually, Engine Number One, this fund, managed to get a few sort of dissident board members who are going to push much more environmental action into the board of ExxonMobil. So they're actually affecting this change and they're starting a new precedent. 
And actually, the SEC has a proposal out right now where they're going to standardize the voting required for companies. We're, we're sort of entering, we're into proxy season now, which is when you have a lot of these shareholder voting events that happen and these talks of what the companies should vote on. And again, this is something that retail investors have been far removed from, but we're going to start to see infrastructure here. And so shareholders and activist shareholders that were starting to hear more and more stories around hedge funds that are really pushing specific agendas in their investments. I think we're going to see a lot of infrastructure in capital as well in terms of acting more and more like communities. I mean, could you imagine an investment horizon where your shareholders act like a community? I think it's it's a very different proposition. You may invest in a company you don't like because you want to change its course. It's not necessarily a financial thing, but it's a social obligation there. I think the impact of strong tie infrastructure. We don't know, just like we didn't, really didn't know what was happening at the beginning of social media, the scale of change. Again, I think we're, we're on a whole different territory now. You bring up an interesting point too, because that highlights the fact that strong ties aren't just going to be showing up in new spaces in like net new innovations, but places where you currently see weak ties may be transitioning into strong tie frameworks instead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what are some of the signals that you're seeing? You know, yes, there are examples of deep tie networks and infrastructures forming, but what are some of the whole like canary in the coal mine signals that might tell us that this is bigger than just some isolated incidences? Yeah, I think there's so many signals. And that's kind of what's interesting here is it really does feel like everything is telling us this is where we're headed. If you look at gaming, gaming has always been on the leading edge of cultural change. You see so many behaviors that played out in gaming, and then they played out in social media later on. And so you can really look at that as an early indicator industry. That's a huge industry too. And so, you know, I remember, I think it was like early 2000s, World of Warcraft came out and I was part of a guild. And it felt really cool to be part of this small community that would do raids and kind of hang out together. And I had my character's name on their website and it felt really cool. And I really think this is the kind of world that we're headed to where we're part of a lot of small, tight-knit branded communities. One interesting thing here that's connected to this is that you've got a lot of top talent from large companies leaving some of the best paid jobs out there. You know, the CFO of Lyft, some VPs from Google, leave these companies to join crypto companies, to join DAOs. And that's what I think what's a really interesting benchmark here is that you've got top talent leaving to join essentially what look and feel like communities. But the difference is here is that these are communities where, yes, there's an element of profit sharing, but there's also an element of control. These are people who can control the destiny of these companies, not just because they're in senior positions, but because they actually have ownership stakes. Again, the DAO is providing a new infrastructure for them actually being able to vote on how this new kind of organization arranges itself and moves forward. So a lot of these big tech companies are really starting to sweat here because these communities are becoming a really powerful draw for top talent. And if that's the case now, fast forwarding 10, 20 years, that might be the new benchmark of the kind of companies people want to belong to. Companies where they have a great sense of ownership and control over where the company goes and a larger percentage of the remuneration of the company. Now, that creates tension against the old guard traditional companies with the traditional compensation models and the new guards of crypto companies doing a lot of these things. So I I don't think we can underestimate how strong of an effect this driver of being part of a community, being part of a strong tie network is. Another area that we're seeing is in, it's an interesting signal, but I would not underestimate it, is co-buying. 
which is when two people or two or more people, a group of friends, let's say, buy a house together, whether that's two single parents helping co-parent each other's kids or a group of friends just getting into the property ladder and essentially they're roommates, but they own the home. In the era of strong ties, you know, one of the things that you have in a small community is far more trust. And with a lot of trust, you can start to do different kinds of innovations. So just like the era of weak ties had a lot of information innovation, I think what we might see in the era of strong ties is more financial innovation. And so the 30-year mortgage really became popularized in the early 1950s, and it came to define the American city as we know it today, the American suburb, just life as we know it, the freeways, all of that infrastructure was built around the single-family home, which was really a product of the 30-year mortgage of you know people being able to afford and buy and incentivizing the construction of single-family homes. So in this new era, what's fascinating, if we saw that much disruption with the 30-year mortgage, what is the new mortgage instrument look like for housing in the era of strong ties. I think it's quite possible we'll get something and potentially, you know, fast forwarding many, many years from now, we may see a similar order of magnitude impact based on this new infrastructure. I really don't think you can underestimate how significant the long tail impacts of these financial instruments could be. I think these are all amazing examples that lead to something much bigger. And it's something that we talk about at our agency, when we're doing futurism sessions or trying to do brand strategy, you bring up this phrase to the team all the time, community is the new brand. What do you really mean by that? Because community has always been a big part of brand. But when you say community is the new brand, what's the step change that's happening here? I think we're setting a new benchmark on how people sort of navigate the world and navigate brands. We've been in a, a predominantly advertising model for brand for a long time, which is really an awareness issue. But now I, I think awareness is becoming maybe more commoditized. And what we need instead is engagement. And we need connection. There's just there's too much information to filter. And so communities are the benchmark of whether we can trust something. And I think there's so many things that are going on there. There's a lot of precedent right now of brands creating and leveraging communities and creating tremendous value in doing so. You know, Airbnb's host community is a perfect case study of how they've created a community that has developed so much retention, so much evangelism, and really, in effect, massively increased the lifetime value of the hosts on their platform we're going to start to see that communities are really how you generate and solidify value. The challenge there is that the rules of building a community are very, very different from the rules of building an audience base or a customer base. And so there's really new, almost supply chains that companies need to build inside of themselves, new skills that we don't have an awful lot of maturity for. And again, you know, with crypto companies, what's really interesting is there's almost community first proposition, value prop second in terms of, you know, actually how they capture value. And, and so these are companies, these are organizations that are generating a lot of expertise and, and really building the playbook on how to build effective communities. And so I think as a lot of legacy companies, to call it, they're going to have to start following those playbooks to build that because that's really how you generate value out of your audience. It's no longer attracting people in. It's building lifetime value, building retention, engagement, loyalty, advocacy. And I think that's where it gets really interesting. So before we get into the rules of building this new kind of community, because I think that's the most important part, I just want to highlight again for all the brand owners that are listening, your community is your new trust signal. 
So what you're saying here is it's not enough to have like, you know, a Facebook group. It's not enough to have a place where people can chat or a board where people can gather. It's the depth and strength of the ties in that community and the culture of the community that you've created that tell people whether they can trust your brand or not. That's a wildly different signal than the signals we've seen in the past. Yeah, a lot of this comes down to exactly what you're saying is trust and authenticity. You know, your brand tells people this is the world that we're building. Well, now you need a community to prove that that's actually what you're doing, because it's so easy to manufacture the message and tell people that, you know, this is what we're doing without actually doing that. And customers are getting far more sensitive. And how do you filter the noise? Again, it comes down to community. And having a platform with a lot of people on it is not a community. LinkedIn is not a community. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So what are some of the rules now for creating what this new kind of community looks like? So I think part of it is you need to platform a conversation. And platforming is an important thing. To platform a conversation means you are posing the question, but you are letting your community have the dialogue. And in effect, what you have to do is give up a bit of ownership. Instead of telling you have to listen and you have to answer the questions that your community has. And part of that is almost an act of co-creation. If you really zoom out, that's what this looks like. So what you mean is like kind of like raising the voices of others. Mm-hmm. It's not about you anymore. It's about the value that you generate. And, and a lot of that comes from the world that you're building. And you want people to authentically be aligned with that value. And that's really where they start to drive identity from. Again, coming back to that, that notion of, you know, find your people, not your passion. A lot of that is how do you find your identity? You know, in, in the find your passion world, you were performing identity. Now it's sort of the proof of that identity is in the people that you spend time with. And so you need to have that authentic passion and that value generation that really creates a sense of identity for a specific community. Doesn't this mean, though, that you have to be willing to let conversations get pretty deep or to have more of a dialogue with your audience, really be able to listen and just commit so many more resources to what community building is, it just feels risky. What would you say to people who feel that when you describe this? Well, I mean, another word for that is vulnerability. And I think that's really what it is. There's an intimacy that people are asking of brands and of the communities and the people in those brands and the faces of those communities. And so I think that, yeah, Companies have to be more vulnerable, but that's the point is people are looking for that. And that's the differentiating signal. The companies that are not willing to be vulnerable cannot be authentic. And I think that's where in a, in a deluge, when there's too much information, you look for those authentic signals. And that's the whole point. So it's a new muscle. And I, I, I'm sure it's making a lot of people very uncomfortable. But I, I really feel that this is the new benchmark for how brands are going to have to operate. And, and this is the new driver of value in brand is their community. And by definition, does this have to be kind of flat or decentralized? Like, is that also a a factor here? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an element of flattening, but that's not to say you can't have thought leaders that are adding value. I mean, you can have some sense of hierarchy. It's really just a feeling of control and a feeling of community ownership. That's a big part of it, is is feeling like my presence here as a consumer, as an advocate of this brand and as part of an invested community is valued and meaningful. I think that's really the most important benchmark. I think within that, you can have structures. And obviously, you know, a lot of communities, you know, take the creator economy, they're built around individuals. So that there is a sense of hierarchy there, which I think a a lot of times people are happy with, 
it's really that they want to have a conversation rather than be told what's happening. And that's the key difference is it's a different kind of experience. Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm realizing too that mission-driven brands will probably not be as competitive here in this future that you're describing as vision-driven brands. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think that we identify a version of the world that a company is creating is really what's compelling and really what's driving identity. It feels really good to have a positive impact in people's lives, but a specific version of the future that you're building, that's what I think creates a much stronger community because there's, there's a more of an identity and a set of values there. And so I'd say that the vision is really where you can create a lot of specificity and strong communities have a lot of specificity. So if you had to project forward what the signals today are going to mean in like five to 10 years, or maybe let's say even like 20, what's some of the stuff that you are envisioning on the horizon? You know, just like social media and, and the era of weak ties kind of created, you know, like Coachella is like a perfect output. Someone described it as a content festival that has music in the background. Really, that's what people are doing. That is a perfect embodiment of what happens in the era of weak ties. I think what we're going to see is that these communities are going to start having physical manifestations. We're going to see communities, like physical communities built up. And so there's some really interesting examples of this. So El Salvador has the proposed Bitcoin city, and they're going to build an entire city built around Bitcoin infrastructure, you know, as, as payments and, and for all sorts of different systems in the city and, and, you know, really, really leaning into decentralization. And there's actually a lot of movements, many of which have not been too successful, but a lot of movements in and around the crypto space to sort of embody it in physical places. There are some communities, I think, in uh, Honduras, Prospera is one. And really, the whole point of this is to build a kind of physical utopia is how they sell it. They're creating special economic zones where they can kind of operate a little bit outside of the rule set. So they don't have a police force. They have a private security force. They don't have a court system. They have an arbitration building. And they don't have citizenship, but you have a membership and a social agreement that you have to sign. And so there's going to be a lot of experimentation until we figure out how to do this right. But I think it's going to be very, very interesting. So there was, there was a brilliant article in The Atlantic recently, why the, the last 10 years uh, of the US have been uniquely stupid. And in that, Jonathan Haidt talks about how social media has kind of diminished trust in a lot of institutions. And you're, you're no longer allowed to speak out um, in dissent of something because um, your own side may come after you. And so I think what's kind of interesting here is that the offshoot of that is you've got lots of disenfranchised groups, these niche communities. And more and more, we're seeing that with social media, with the algorithm funneling people to smaller and smaller communities where, you know, they all believe in a, a certain version of the truth. And it's different from another community over there. These communities buying up land, oftentimes in Latin America, and trying to build these communities. They're trying to codify these digital communities as physical communities. And I think really that's we're going to see a lot of that to come. You know, Nomadland is a great example of how people are starting to think differently about how they live. And I really think that the, the convergence of community, communal, communal living, and crypto infrastructure, there's just a lot of values that overlap and a lot of opportunity there. I think we're going to see a lot of disruption. What's Nomadland? The movie telling the story of a lot of people who um, can't afford to retire oh, in, right. in yes, homes. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, they, they live in essentially communities in camper vans. But the point here is that the traditional model of retiring in your home that you've paid off, I think, is, is going to wane. And we're going to start to see something very new and very different emerge out of that.
Yeah, that's another point there. We kind of need innovations in the strong Thai arena to emerge because there are parts of our everyday lives like retirement that are literally failing. So of course there'd be a need for innovation there. Tell me more about these communities and community living. Yeah, so there's a really funny story that I think it serves as a good a good reminder. You know, in any new area of innovation, it takes a while to figure out how to do things well. There's a great story of uh, Freetown in uh, New Hampshire of a whole bunch of libertarians got together and moved into a town, and they were going to make it a uh, libertarian utopia. It uh, shortly got overrun by bears because, you know, everyone wanted to um, do their own thing. Some people would feed the bears. No one, there was no kind of unified system of bear-proof trash storage. They didn't build the infrastructure. And so um, it did not end well. Um, actually, it ended pretty horrifically. The bears would eat pets and attack people. And uh, anyway, that's a story of uh, how not to do that. But I think that the principle remains that there are a lot of people out there who want to form these niche communities. We're seeing a massive rise in homeschooling. You know, when you homeschool, you you start to, it's a really good example of how you remove the ability to get out of your own echo chamber. And I think especially in the metaverse, it's going to get very poignant here of you can spend your entire week without ever meeting someone who thinks something different than you. You have the ability to do that. You know, now you can order groceries before you bump into someone. At the very least, in these public spaces, you would meet someone who might expose you to a different way of thinking. But more and more, we're kind of removing the need to ever bump into someone who doesn't agree with you. And so with that fractured reality, I think we're just going to codify that in physical and digital spaces. And I, I do think the metaverse is going to be a major force here of creating spaces that people hang out that uh, really are kind of built essentially around echo chambers. I mean, I think it's going to be a really interesting question to see, do we have a force that acts against echo chambers in the metaverse because you know in our research with kids at least the amount of time they spend gaming is really quite incredible and so i think that time spent around games and the social dynamics around that are really going to shape the next generation in a very meaningful way so this is the dark side of strong ties it seems like the brighter side of strong ties is the fact that you can actually form deeper connections and more meaningful communities the dark side of that is those communities then can become more insulated from the rest of the world. And it, I mean, generally sounds like it just kind of could possibly breed like intolerance or disconnection from other groups, I guess you could say. And this is an example of the divergent systems we've talked about on this podcast many times before, where the incentives of a system don't necessarily match up with the goals of a system. If you had to say, you know, between the light side and the dark side of things, like, how do you think this stuff will all net out? Well, I think there is a, there's an important biological precedent here. You know, Dunbar's number from studies, it seems that when we were hunter-gatherers, we would gather in tribes of about 100 to 150. And that's the sort of natural limit of how many social connections we can really maintain at any one time. And so it feels like it stands to reason that maybe we are moving towards a more tribal-like society. And that's what our natural proclivity is, is, is we want to be in these larger tribes. And a lot of friction comes from trying to get everyone into one large tribe. Maybe, maybe that's just not the natural disposition of, of being a human. And so for better or for worse, we may see that of, of a lot more fractured realities just because of uh, almost a return towards our, our natural instincts. I think, you know, technology has brought us away from our, our natural instincts. And maybe, you know, with more technology, we kind of the pendulum swings back and we return to that. For the record, that's not everybody's point of view as an agency, <laughs> um, but Jean-Louis uh, 
that that's his point of view. Okay. Well, I think it's an it's an important force. You know, at least at the very least, it's really important to understand that this is a possible future. Uh, but we're seeing what what I think is just important here is that we're seeing the story of communities and the story of strong ties play out in just so many disparate areas, you know, from gaming to investing to living arrangements to entertainment to education, you know, with cohort-based learning. We didn't quite talk about that, but that's another huge force. Learning is really... um, thriving around the model of cohort-based learning. There's a lot of questions about, you know, long-term retention and things like that, but it does seem that there's a tremendous amount of value captured in creating more cohort-based learning. Isn't all education like that right now? Don't you graduate with your cohort? Uh, well, you know, this is in response to a lot of MOOCs, you know, and, and, and uh, asynchronous online learning. We're finding that just the completion rates are very, very different. And so as far as efficacy goes, it does appear that that, that communal-based learning is a better model. And so again, like, we're just, we're seeing it in so many different layers. So uh, to me, this feels like a strong signal. Obviously, when you start to project 20, 50 years out, you know, it, it gets very, very fuzzy. But the general trend is there. When does it make sense to be a community brand that is focused on creating strong ties? And when does it not make sense? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. With all this stuff happening, when do you make the leap? I think part of that comes down to if you want to play in culture or not, if you want to become a culturally relevant brand. For a lot of brands, it's not worth it. Honestly, the ROI, uh, the, the investment is pretty high. And if you're in a maybe not as commodified space, where there, there is just a simple kind of a value proposition uh, with not a ton of competition, then maybe you don't need to. You can capture a lot of the value in the traditional models of advertising. But where we're seeing the most competitive brand landscapes, where there's a lot of innovation happening, uh, where there's a lot of change happening, and uh, importantly, a lot of investment. You know, investment always turns into ad dollars. And so where you're seeing floods of capital enter, you may have to play in culture in order to stay relevant and stay ahead of the curve. And I think what's interesting here is that if we're moving to a post-advertising economy or a model here and, you know, over a very long time span, community is maybe the only thing that you have that's truly defensible. Otherwise, you're just buying attention. And the minute you stop paying for attention, you stop getting attention. Whereas community does have a flywheel effect. It's a great way of generating organic engagement. It's a great way of leveraging influence. There's just there's a long ROI. So when your space is getting very competitive and when it's hard to stand out and hard to be defensible, this may be a frontier that you want to enter. I get the sense that good or bad, something about all this change really excites you what's the one thing that really gets you revved up about these signals? Well, I mean, I think that it's so easy to to look back and, and not realize just how much changed and just how quickly it changed. I mean, 20 years ago, it was a wildly different experience of being a human. You know, you could argue that technology today is an extension of being a human. I think that we're if this is right, if the, the era of weak ties was the, the, the speed of change and the speed of information accelerated, and now in the era of strong ties, it's the depth of change that's going to happen. I don't think we can underestimate just how much change is coming. And I think that as someone who enjoys the future, I find that tremendously exciting one way or another. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Unseen Unknown. If you're new here and like what you're listening to, leave us a review. You can always get more of our brand strategy and culture articles, videos, and podcasts at our agency website, conceptbureau.com. And while you're there, you can also sign up for our awesome newsletter. I promise it will be one of your favorite emails to receive. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.